Hey, everybody. Let's see. Wednesday, the 14th of June, 2017. And this is the promotional Mar practice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. I'm the host of this program. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining. We'll go about 90 minutes or so, a little bit less, closer to 85 today. Um, and we'll talk about the topics that you want to talk about in mixed martial arts and or the related world. Uh, best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com, where this window is embedded. Um, obviously, there's DJ and Dana still squabbling. There is UFC Singapore this weekend. We're all at the heels of UFC Auckland. Let's see. We've got uh, Bellator making some commentary changes. We've got my colleagues forming an MMA journalist association. A lot of different stuff. A lot of different stuff happening. So um, get your questions in. If you can't get them in on Twitter, excuse me, on uh, MMA Fighting, you can use Twitter. Use the hashtag chat rappers. There's instructions in the post below. And I'm on Twitter at L Thomas News. All right. There we go. Happy to be joining you today here in the nation's capital. I woke up a little bit later than normal, so uh, I only got around just now to getting coffee. Sweet, delicious caffeine that is the source of all my life and sustains me. All right. Oops. For some reason, that's playing on my screen. All right. Let's get to this, shall we? Okay, first question. Uh, hey, Luke, so Max Holloway on Monday jokingly said that you should stop breaking down his fights and giving up his secrets. Yes, he did. Uh, I just want to know, uh, how do you, excuse me, I just want to know, how do your breakdowns compare to the ones that coaches of the fighters do when prepping for a fight? The initial assumption is that they definitely do it on a deeper level. It's very much true. But is it the case for most of them? I know that coaches like the ones in Jackson Week Camp spend a lot of time watching tape, and I for sure know that Conor McGregor and his coaches do as well. But are there coaches that actually pay very little attention to actual fight analysis? Yeah, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Um, first of all, if y'all didn't hear Max, I mean, you're going to be like, Luke, why are you playing this? And the answer to this is quite obvious. It's not every day that the... Uh, Featherweight champion of the world, who happens to be one of the best fighters alive, compliments your analytical skills. So, just for the purposes of clarification, let's play that, shall we? I know, I know your buddy Luke Thomas. I'm gonna be on his, show, and uh, I know, I know your buddy Luke Thomas. I'm gonna be on his show a little bit later on. But uh, you know, he has some of the best breakdowns uh, of my fight. Like I. Like I kind of, I'm gonna tell him stop watching my fights because he's giving away too much, too much information already. But, uh, but for real. So there you go. So if you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, and you know what, I'll post that up here, um, so you can see it from last week. I'll start making that a habit. Uh, I've been telling you all the program's good. You got Demetrius Johnson, now Max Holloway, Ben Wynn, Louis Smolka, all vouching for it. So please give it a look if you can. But to answer the question, um, well, okay. So I've never actually sat down with a coach and watch them break down tape in the way that I have to do it. you got to remember there's limitations to the Monday morning analyst. I watch the fights on Saturday night typically, right? I mean, it varies, but typically Saturday night. Then I usually have Sunday to think about what I want to um, produce, you know, what do I want to focus on or whatnot. Then either Sunday night and then Monday morning, I start putting it all together, and it's, you know, I understand that the quality is not, like, super high, but that's actually why it takes so long is because you have to go through everything and cut slides, and it's just, it's just painstaking. But the point being is this. 
um, I have seen coaches break down things on tape for students in training environments, and they definitely go very, very deep. What they do is a sort of atomization process whereby whereby they um, they go through the smallest organic, or I should say smallest identifiable detail, and then they have them focus on that. Then they go to the next detail and have them focus on that. Then the next one, the next one. And then they begin to chain everything, and then the chains get longer and longer and longer and longer. Point being is that um, I, I'm really sort of going with fairly broad strokes in that. These coaches who really do it, man, they get down to the, the absolute nitty-gritty detail, and it reminds me of something like what BJJ Scout might do. BJJ Scout's videos, I mean, straight up, they're just better than mine. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is that uh, he goes through this longitudinal study and really begins to put the pieces of the puzzle together. You know, his Ben Askren piece was like that, where he, he's looking at someone's trends over many, 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 many fights. And he's obviously got an incredible eye for detail. So when you combine the two, you can really do a lot with it. I think that's what coaches do a lot of. Right? They get down to these very, very, very minute details about how their hand placement works, how the hand placement shifts, then how their hips go, then the I mean, everything, everything. And then they slowly build it all together. And I've seen that in training environments. Um, Stephen, uh, Stephen Wright is, is good for that. The war man, Johnny Hendricks is striking coach, the old striking coach at Team Takedown. He gets super, super, he just sort of builds off one insight, then builds another on top, then another, then another, then another, then another. And before you know it, you have a sense about how this person uses that technique, but not merely, again, with a broad stroke, but with a very, very, very specific um, uh, understanding of the application. So when you say coaches go deeper, they definitely go deeper, in part because they have to, in part because they have time, in part because they're better than what I can do. Um, it's a lot of those reasons. But, but yeah, I, I've never sat down – I've never sat down with a coach – to help him do what I do. Like if, for example, if I, um, I, I have reached out to fighters and coaches after fights to ask them questions before the Monday morning analyst. Like I see something and I just don't quite understand it. Right. Cause I'm not going to be as good as them. Uh, then they help me out, you know, and they'll so say, Oh, well check this out when he puts his foot here and that's why and shifting his weight this way or whatever. But yeah, I'm taking more broad strokes. I'm just trying to put together a piece together. You know, I'm. I, it's very simple what I do. I watch the fight and I go, okay, someone affected change here. How did that happen? And then I go back and I sort of piece it all together, see if there are antecedents in the fight that uh, helped set up these circumstances, which is almost always the case at elite fighting. You're not just going to go in an elite fighter and just start wailing on them. I mean, it happens, but it's pretty rare. You have to set things up, you know, because otherwise they're not going to fall for it. So... So there you go. But I have seen coaches, to answer your question, that look at very little tape. I've seen coaches that will look at a lot of tape, but the fighter won't look at any tape. Um, most coaches look at some tape. Uh, fighters are very split on that. You know, they don't. The, the belief is that they watch too much tape that they begin to just sort of look to see what their opponent is doing rather than applying themselves. Coaches are a little bit more willing to look at tape, but I have met coaches who don't do a lot of film study. Um, I think the best ones do, I'm not saying heavy film study, I think at some point it becomes a preference, but I will say that I think the best coaches, I, we can say, do at least a moderate or more amount of of prep via video analysis, pre-fight video analysis, for sure. I, I don't see how you really can um, win at an elite consistent level without it, to be honest. Uh 
What is this? How did they do it? Over the last week, I've exchanged some messages on Twitter with a few clued up accounts. The UFC are getting away with murder. I'm generally curious about fighter pay. Oh, it's a long conversation. Come on, we've had a thousand of those. Uh, what does this MMA Journalists Association mean? Boy, good question. Uh, I tried to go to the website today and it, it kept crashing. So part of it, I'm, I'm as a little bit uh, in the dark as you guys. But I, some of this is well known publicly, so... I'll just talk about what I know, and that's not as much as someone others. Um, and for example, Dan Stuff is going to be in my radio show later. He is the president of the MMA Journalists Association, so I'm going to have plenty of questions for him. I think some other journalists have questions as well. It all kind of started out after what happened to UFC 199 with Ariel and uh, Esther and Casey. And um, there was this large email chain where basically everyone in the industry was on it. You know, uh, Some contributed thoughts and some didn't. I think I shared a few, but not many. Um, and then they created for, I think, reasons of, and there's debate about this, but I think for reasons of uh, getting work done, they created a smaller working group, which is the five gentlemen that you saw. So uh, let me see if I got it. Dan, Ariel, uh, Josh Gross, Ben Folks, Chad Dundas, maybe I'm, oh, and Mark Ramundi, so six. And they created a smaller working group with some, I, I believe, uh, assistance in strategy or perhaps other forms of help from Vox Media. That's the parent company of MMA Fighting. Uh, Vox Media has said today that they have no real part in the association at all. They encourage their members to join. So I think there was more just providing some guidance. And that was detailed in the Richard Deitch story. So beyond that, I don't know a whole lot. I was able to read through some of the bylaws. They all seem pretty straightforward. Um, looking to see for more information, I'm going to ask Dan about some things. You know, Where does the organization stand on... Uh, sites like Bloody Elbow or guys like Jon Snowden or Josh Gross, who's a charter member, right? What, what's the plan for those guys or Loretta Hunt? Or what's going to happen in the future if somebody gets blackballed? What is the plan? Um, what do the dues go to? Uh, these kinds of things, you know, right? Just want to figure out what's what and heads uh, uh, what's up and what's down. So, and from there, we'll make, I guess I'll make a decision about, you know, what's best and makes the most sense for uh, me and the profession and my colleagues and the practice itself. So, um, but I'm curious. I'm hopeful. I certainly commend all those guys for what had to be a Herculean amount of work just to get it looks, you know, you go to the website, you're like, yeah, here's a constitution. Here's, you know, a couple of about pages. How hard could this be? It's very, very hard. It's very, very hard. And th those guys put in a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes. Thankless job. Totally. Uh, so I commend all of my colleagues for really putting something together there. As far as what it stands for and what its plans are, I'm still trying to figure that out too. Um, so maybe I'll have a better understanding after today's conversation with Dan or some additional reading. But at a bare minimum, it seems like a positive development. At a bare minimum, you have to have an extraordinary amount of, um, in my, from my perspective, um, appreciation for what those guys were able to put together. And I'm and at a bare minimum, I'm very curious to see where it goes. But I am, I am, I am optimistic. I think is what I would say. How do you weed out the scabs who don't join? I don't know. Uh, Hunt lawsuit. I have not followed the story. Now that the call to dismiss the case has been rejected, do you believe it's in the UFC's best interest to settle outside of court? Probably. That's a better question for Eric McGracken. Certainly, I don't see how going to court is in their best interest, but 
at the same time, if they ultimately feel like his demands, and especially remember those contractually, or like he gets you know someone's purse, or if they if they test positive, or whatever the various demands are he's making, and accusations he's making in this in this suit, uh, if they find those untenable, then I, and and the hunt side refuses to settle, I guess they have no option. But to be frank, this is not a story that I have delved into in, in great detail. So I'll, I'll move on from that because I just don't want to say things I couldn't possibly stand behind. Uh, contract news. Hi, Luke. Any updates on the contract situations of Musasi, Joe Duffy, and Rampage? Ooh. Uh, Rampage I have not looked into. Joe Duffy I will. Musasi I've heard that things are actually pretty close, but nothing official. Nothing official. Uh, I'll check in on those other two. Uh, how likely do you think it is uh, for their next fights to be in the UFC? Musasi, very likely. Joe, unlikely. Rampage, hard to tell. Because Rampage could get signed as a mere opportunity for someone with a name to headline some Fox Sports 1 shows on a down year, right? In a time where they ordinarily would not consider his services to be in high demand. Um, the current climate would make them a little bit more in demand than they ordinarily are. So there's a possibility that that could be the case. Um, or they may just look at him like, hey, man, your best days are past. You had some great ones, but you know these are not you're too expensive for what we ultimately could use you for. It's going to be very inter interesting to see what happens there. I don't know that he resigns with Bellator. I don't think he really enjoyed being a part of the organization. But, but, um, but Joe, I don't think there's really much of a chance. But I guess we'll see. Things can change. On a, these negotiations, man, things can change on a dime. They can look bad, and someone's one side can just say, "Okay, forget it. Let's just do it," um, one way or the other. And so things might look a certain way, and then ultimately just go a different direction. I guess we'll have to find out. Someone says, "I'm not sure Rampage wants anything to do with the UFC, and only fought the uh, his fight with them because the court ruled he was still under contract with the UFC, even though he signed a contract with Bellator." Right, but that's also why Bellator doesn't want him. <laughs> Right, I mean, you went and fought in the UFC when you were under contract with us, so there's a bit of you know discontent about it. Uh, Lawler, how do you think the rest of Robbie, Robbie Lawler's career will pan out? I think the Cowboy fight is a big tell, a big tell because he's had a lot of time off—not a lot, a huge amount, but it's enough time off since the uh, Woodley loss that. And changed camps and has had, you know, as an experienced veteran, like he's doing all the things he needs to do to say, I've got no excuse if there's not success that follows this, or at least look good, right? You don't have to win every single fight, but you need to sort of compete at a level that is commensurate with expectation. And uh, again, I really, really wonder. I've talked about it in this live chat, and it's something I was thinking about this today, as a matter of fact. I really wonder if Condit and Lawler are the same after that last fight of theirs. Because uh, I don't think Condit is. And I think Condit doesn't think he is. And Lawler did not look good against Woodley. Now, that was in relatively close succession. So perhaps there's something to that. But uh, if he comes back and looks awesome against Lawler, he's not trigger shy. It looks like his chin is not gone. If there's just no signs of being shop worn, then okay, they look like the rest worked and he's ready to keep going and he's got some life left in him and he can make another push. Absolutely. If, on the other hand, um, it looks like He's slowed down a step or is hesitant to throw or can't take a shot. 
I think we can all go back to that day. Where, I mean, if you've not rewatched the Lawler Condit fight, you have to go back and look. I cannot imagine how a rational observer could look at that fight and say to themselves, "Those guys didn't leave a piece of themselves in there." I mean, they did. They just did. How big a piece? I don't know. For Condit, it felt like a big one. Maybe Lawler got the least worst, or relatively didn't get it as bad as Condit did. Ultimately, maybe that's why Lawler won. But he still, I mean, all those five round contests he was in, and that one was maybe the most br brutal of them all. I just have a hard time. Not a hard time. I am skeptical of the claim that he walked out of there without being meaningfully changed, especially given what happened to Condit. So how's the rest of his career going to pan out? It is impossible to say. This fight against Cerrone is a big, big, big deal. This is a guy who's been fighting since the days of Evan Tanner at middleweight or Tiki Gosen. And Robbie Lawler has been in there a very long time competing all over the world against very good fighters. Um, at some point, that train is going to come to a halt. And certain events are going to help bring it to a halt more quickly than others. So is it is that is that Condit fight the one that did it? I have a hunch that maybe it's true, but I don't know that it's true. And I think a fight against someone like Cerrone, who was active in your face, he might have his own issues too, by the way, but typically known for being active in your face, you know, steady with offense, throwing hard, forcing reactions out of opposition. It'll be a good test for us to see exactly where he is and, and where he might go. Uh, fantastic Fantasy matchups. Look, I haven't seen anyone ask you any fantasy matchups recently. Well, there might be a reason for that. So I thought I would. All right, here we go. Cormier versus Romero. I'd probably go with Cormier. Jones versus Rumble. Jones. Kane versus Miocic. That's a more interesting one. Part of me wonders if Kane can still beat him. Forced to make a choice. Forced to make a choice. I'll say Kane, but that's a very let me. I mean, I am that. That's not a very confident pick. I'll put it that way. Gustafson versus Rockhold. Ooh, Gustafson. DJ at 135 versus Garbrandt, Cruz, or Dillashaw. I don't know if I like his chances against any of those guys at 135. Prime BJ versus Holloway. 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 There was a really interesting question about this, and I, I, I wonder what it's going to be. And I and uh, my colleague, Eric Hawani, asked him this. I asked him the same thing in a bit of a different way. Namely, like, at what point do you become the best fighter ever out of Hawaii? Now, BJ is something of a more celebrated figure, I think, um, given his history and how he was some, something of a pioneer, um, both for Hawaii and MMA generally. And the real big kicker for me is going to be, number one, how many title defenses or achievements ultimately Max is able to, to, to put together. But the one that's going to make it kind of interesting is BJ has the two titles and two weight classes. You know, And I know he didn't really hold on to welterweight all that long, but... Um, Nevertheless, he did capture it, and he did capture it and defend the lightweight title. And so I really wonder what that's going to do. Now, interestingly, Max Holloway has spoken about going up. Max Holloway has talked about, I don't know if I'm going to make 145 forever. He's getting bigger. It's, he's only 25, so it's, he's got some time left. But I think you know, by the time he's 28, 29, 30, he might decide just a little bit easier for me to make 155, and we'll see what he's doing at that point, right? He might have some really mature skills. But, uh, but that's going to be an interesting debate. How... Imagine that Max sticks around at featherweight for a while and just dominates guys. 
how many of those defenses are going to be equal in the eyes of some observers as BJ's two different titles? Some of you watching this are probably going to say, to me, it doesn't make a big deal that that win over Hughes was semi-flukish. He lost the rematch, right? ultimately winning the rubber match, but he did lose the rematch. Who cares? You know, lost to St. Pierre twice. Uh, big deal. You know, t- uh, what do you call it? Um, Drew with Fitch. Big deal, right? Uh, Max Holloway will have, you know, let's say something like six, seven title defenses, right? That to me is just much better. I can understand that perspective. I can also understand the perspective of some who say, I'm sorry, going up another weight class and beating that reigning champion, it's, you just can't overlook that. Uh, that is going to be an interesting debate to have and how we sort of formulate arguments for either side. I, I, for me, I think there is probably a point where if Max doesn't jump weight, and nevertheless uh, accumulates certain amount of title defenses, that to me will be sufficient um, for saying he's the best Hawaiian ever. Or, you know, yeah. Now, someone's asking Prime BJ versus Holloway. The thing about Prime BJ is uh, he had an incredible jab, but I do think ultimately Max, I mean, Max is just competing in a different way than guys ever competed. You know, this is the problem with comparing eras is that the game is very different. You know, BJ had solid takedown defense, but Max wouldn't look to take him down. And Max would look to do stance switching on the outside. What, you know, Sean Shirk was not doing that. You know, Matt Hughes was not doing that. Diego Sanchez was not doing that. Kenny Florian was not doing that. He's not a whole lot of it. You know, someone like Max, BJ never fought someone like Max. So for his time, Max has not yet reached the standard that BJ did. BJ was the first kind of guy to be really well-rounded. An excellent jab, hard to hurt, literally some of the best jiu-jitsu in the game. Uh, surprisingly good wrestling, right? And, and heavy-handed as well. Um, you know, there were some things that BJ did that Max probably won't ever have, right? He's never going to be a jiu-jitsu world champion. He's never going to be a super hard puncher. But he doesn't need to be. He's got a lot of other skills and a lot of other developments. And that stance switching that we've talked about a lot on the Monday Morning Analyst that he incorporates has been a big, big, big component of it. Uh, I, I just don't think he's ever fought anyone like him. And I really wonder how he would hold up to that kind of challenge. Okay, this is a big one that we, this is a funny thing. Someone goes, is Dillashaw, meaning TJ Dillashaw, a Dilla douche? Here's how he spells it, or she, I'm not sure who it is. D-I-L-L-A-D-U-E-S-C-H. That is not how you spell douche. Do we know what douching is? Do we have to have a sex ed class? Douching is the cleaning of the vagina with water, saline solution, or other kinds of fluids. Right? That's what that is. And it's spelled D-O-U-C-H-E. Right? That is what douching is, just so everybody knows. Uh, it is a practice that not every woman adopts. Uh, it varies by age, by race, to an extent, uh, income class. But understand what what it is and how it's spelled. D-O-U-C-H-E. So, is Dillashaw a Dilla douche? Don't don't know if that's even a play on words, much less its own kind of word. But I know what you're trying to say. Is he being a douche bag, right? A bag used in the process of douching. Here I am. See, I'm helping you guys out. All right. 
Do you think TJ should have a bit more respect for a fighter in a contract dispute that has consistently been defending his belt three times a year? I understand that wanting that fight, but to try to bully him into... I'm just going to read how he writes it. That wanting that fight, but to try to bully him into seems like a dick move, especially since DJ's main grievance was that the UFC was trying to bully him. Yeah. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this last week. This is an interesting one. You know, one of my theories, and I still hold hold to it, was that after watching a f- the few episodes of The Ultimate Fighter and even some subsequent ones as well, it, it, it occurred to me that um, I've still never really understood any of the... I mean, I understand the mechanics of why there's backlash against TJ Dillashaw, but the validity of the arguments for the backlash to me have always been incredibly bankrupt. There's really close to no merit for any of them. Um, especially given the ubiquity of these kinds of things that happens. And everyone's like, what about loyalty? What about they invested in him, right? These are not our, he's not a slave, right? They're not brothers. This is a business arrangement. And one of the partners decided to leave. And if you thought he was that bad of a guy, you should let him go. But in any case, uh, but I thought that the way in which the guys on team alpha male were handling it by being so aggressive on the ultimate fighter was going to work against them over time. Or if you come across as a bully on TV, there would be some lingering, or I should say not lingering, there should be emergent feelings for the other person who's getting bullied. And I kind of thought, boy, TJ was really right in line to receive some of that. And I think he has, and I think he will continue to do so. But he has capped that a little bit, hasn't he? By coming out and speaking out against DJ. Uh, Politically, it was not a savvy move. right? And by that I mean, look, there are certain times in this world when you look around and you can see which way the wind's blowing. And as someone like me, who often feels like conventional wisdom is totally wrong, you have to make choices about to what extent you want to get in there and you want to fight fires, right? And I understand he wants this fight, and I think there could have been a way he could have argued for it without treading into this territory where I'm not saying he was, but I think some felt like it looked like he was carrying water for the UFC. And he did not tread that line very delicately. Right. If he had gone up there and said, look, I understand what he's saying. I understand what he's saying. You know, I get it. Um, and, you know, I support all fighters who feel like they got to get with it. What's theirs. I'm just going to say, look, I think it'd be a great opportunity for the fans. I think it'd be a great opportunity for DJ. But, you know, the guy wants to get paid. I want to help him get paid. I want to get paid, too. And look, of course, I think I'm going to win. I'm not doing this as charity. Don't misunderstand me. Um, but I just feel like at the end of the day, I can make an argument that this is definitely what's best for me. And I can make an argument that's definitely what's best for him. You know, he's got to figure that out on his own, and I don't want to get in the middle of it. I'll just say, and you know, hey, DJ, I hope you can make the fight, uh, but I understand. Not but I understand. I hope you can make the fight and just leave it at that. You know, craft some kind of message that indicates that, hey, you still want to throw your hat in the ring, but you understand that um, um, there's larger issues at play here. Or don't. Or just come out balls deep <laughs> like he did, and uh, and then accept the consequences of doing that politically, right? If you really believe that that's the right course and that you don't owe anyone an apology, then don't apologize for it. Just go and do what you want. But um, to me, if I was TJ, and maybe he doesn't care about these things, but there is a case to be made that, like, you are really going to be the beneficiary of some, um, again, emergent sympathies from the way you were being, it looked like, treated on the Ultimate Fighter vis-a-vis your old teammates. Why spoil that by going after a fight that you don't really need that you've already you've already got this other one that's still going to happen 
and doing so at a time when the guy has positioned his issues about not taking it as a disagreement with the UFC after being a model citizen for low these many years. It was just a little tone deaf. It was a little tone deaf. But at the same time, look, man, I can tell you as a contrarian, sometimes you just go out there and say, I don't really care what you think. I just, I just don't care. I don't care that this will play badly. Um, I'm going to do what I want to do. The, the other issue here, though, for TJ is going out there on that MMA, what was it, sorry, MM triple A, Yes, the double M, triple A. And, you know, speaking about the need for fighters to band together and yada, yada, yada. That just really undercuts your argument, right? You have a guy who's coming out here and he's making a, who never makes a show of his disagreements with the UFC and then does it in probably the most pronounced way over a fight that you don't really need. Uh, seems a bit odd. Oh, God. They cowling me. What is this? Who boy? Oh god, what's happening here? All right. So, as we've talked about in previous issues of this podcast, how they how someone reconciles that, I don't think you can reconcile that. If you're in a situation where you're asking for a fight with a guy, Right. I mean, if you want to be respectful, you can do that one option, but there's always going to be some kind of tension, some kind of tension in any scenario where I want to have a fight with another fighter and they're having an issue with the promoter about my fight or that I'm pitching to them or that the promoter's trying to make. The only way to resolve that, in my judgment, is to have some kind of formalized agreement so that whatever those grievances are, that can clearly be seen as between those two parties with a grievance process in place. If you've got a grievance process in place, hey, I feel like I'm entitled to X based on this written agreement. I haven't been given it. If I feel like I haven't been given it, I have a process in place to go and pursue this to see if I, uh, I can get what I'm entitled to. If you do that, the other guy can still badger you a little bit because that process will be handled independently. There's already a mechanism for it. The problem is because there is no process, what DJ did publicly becomes the process. So now you going against it looks like you are impeding the process, right? This is why these guys have got to figure this out. They need an agreement. They need an agreement, if not for that Reebok deal that might happen again, if not for the next set of television money, if not for anything, anything. Uh, it will just keep creating problems. We have reached a stage where everyone is woke and they recognize all of the inequities and so they're acting to get those inequities resolved for themselves, but that just keeps creating problems and contagion for the next guy. It is it is a very weird moment in the time of uh, of our dear Lord, 2017. Someone goes, Dilla Deutsch, are you asking if he's German in ethnicity? Maybe he is, I don't know. Oh, and then someone spells it correctly below that. Thank you. White proclaiming McGregor as the greatest pound-for-pound pound fighter. Before anything else, I hope you are having the most delightful of weeks. I am now. As has been featured recently, Dana White claimed that McGregor was the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world instead of DJ, which most certainly had absolutely nothing to do with DJ's complaints about the UFC. Of course not. While the statement itself was dumb, am I wrong in feeling that while minor, it was an utterly tone-deaf statement considering the current fighter pushback? Yes. 
not just because of reverence for, uh, of DJ, but also because it seems dismissive of the current top fighters who remain active and fighting the best of their divisions. And this was not meant as a knock on McGregor in any way. Well, first of all, there is something to be said. Um, shout outs to Dave Camarillo. Dave Camarillo, uh, the founder of Gorilla Jiu-Jitsu, previous coach at um, AKA. He has his own practice now. Um, international class judo player, black belt, I think under Half Gracie. I could be wrong about that. But uh, developed a style of jiu-jitsu where it incorporates a lot of judo into it and throws and everything and so and takedowns. And so it's called a gorilla jiu-jitsu. He's a fantastic coach. Uh, we did a technique talk with him on beating Ronda and everything else. And uh, and uh, in any case, he made an argument that I think is worth taking seriously. Whether you agree with it or not, you at least have to think about it. That if you're going to call someone the best pound-for-pound -pound fighter or the greatest of all time or something, measuring title defenses is certainly an important uh, consideration. But another important consideration is, did they move up and wait? That is almost always what some of the greater ones do. They dominate their weight class enough, then go up a little bit, dominate, go up a little bit, and dominate. In boxing, it's a little easier because you got these six or seven pound intervals at times. But you get the idea. And DJ hasn't really done that. And so if you want to limit the argument about DJ, about whether or not he's pound for pound, because he has not gone up in weight. I mean, he did fight a bantamweight, but I mean, since, you know, posting up shop at flyweight and and then trying to go up. If you want to make an argument about that, you could. Now, that's different than what's happening here. I'm merely introducing that because he was trying to make a serious point about how we how we assess greatness and rank it. Now, this is a different scenario altogether. I mean, I, I hope people... I mean, look. There's all kinds of criticisms to make of media. Today, tomorrow, in the past, in the future. A lot. There's a lot you can say uh, that would be utterly substantive. But if you've got someone who just reflexively, you know, blames the media, he said, well, the media is calling him this. Well, first of all, that like, what's so bizarre about that is that's not even true. I mean, yeah, the media is, but there's evidence from less than two months ago of him effusively shouting the guy's praise and explicitly calling him the best and maybe the goat. It's like, it's not us. Um, or it's not us alone anyway. So I mean, it's dem I, dem I mean, a, a literal demonstrably false statement, number one. Uh, number two, the, be the best press critics typically, now there are some exceptions to this, typically aren't the ones that have the greatest amount of disdain for it. In other words, if you've got someone who has a real animosity about the media, um, what that often will tell you is that they are so jaundiced and so irate that they're typically not capable of making real incisive commentary about it. They reflexively have this anger that they feel like they don't even need to weigh in on the merits of the argument anymore. It's so self-evidently true. Um, you should just accept this. I mean, how do I, why do I even need to argue for this? Like you got to get... If you want to make your point in this world, you got to get there. You got to argue for it. You got to you got to make the case. And if someone is reflexively blaming media and doing so because they have got a demonstrated history of hostility towards them, you just know this is not a position that, generally speaking, you need to take seriously. And then when you do e examine this seriously, you begin to realize it's not only a false statement; it's demonstrably false. I can literally demonstrate it's not true. It's just you got to not take this seriously. Like, oh, I can't talk to the Local, I can't talk to MMA media anymore because, you know, it's all gotcha journalism. Um, 
I'll just talk to the Colin Cowards and the NBA and TNTs. And I understand that they got a much bigger audience. Like strategically, that makes sense because of the way in which you can impact the narrative. But it also makes sense because um, they're not going to ask you any questions that are really substantively pushing back for the most part. Right? There's that too. So look, what do I make of this? If they make a deal, especially if they make the Dillashaw fight for whatever reason, you know, in, in two more months, they'll be calling him the greatest of all time again, especially if DJ wins, right? I don't, I don't, this is less a statement of any kind of, you know, deep thought observation more than it is a hostile reaction to, um, so, uh, to a labor dispute. It's the way he feels, not the way things are. And that's true generally, but this one is much more capricious. The, the, the mood is, is what, what drives this. It's not, there's not, there's not anything, there's no bedrocked principled foundation here. Um, he's not, you know, and, you, and look, if you want to make a case for McGregor, you can make that case. That's not the point. The point is that, you know, two months ago, you were saying differently. McGregor hasn't fought since then. What changed? Oh, I think I know what changed, you know. Um, the, the, this is an interesting part. It's like, and this is the question I think is the most interesting one. It was utterly tone-deaf statement considering the current fighter pushback. This is what I mean. Uh, this is why I'm worried, because this is not just the UFC's fault here. And by I mean that, well, here's what I mean. Look, Dana is who he is at this point. Well, the guy's one was 50. I mean, Patrice O'Neill, one of my favorite comedians, just has a point. Like, once you reach 40, man, that's just who you are. Now you could talk about oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read more books. I'm gonna travel more. You might, but chances are you just are who you are, man. You know, if you were never much of a reader before forty, you're not gonna be much of one after. If you were never much of a weightlifter before forty, you're not gonna be one after. If you weren't a traveler, I mean, you get the idea. And so you know, everyone's like, um, he, this is how he's going to operate. I think now. He, there are ways to think that because he has evolved his style over time and he's less brash than he used to be, um, perhaps he is capable of additional, um, he can make additional revisions to his promoting style. But fundamentally, I believe this. I believe this, I believe this, and I really think this is true. There's a lot of things that I, I'm not sure about in this world. There's a lot of things where I can see arguments for both sides, or I, maybe I lean a direction, but not with absolute or firm conviction. This is one where I lean with a fairly firm conviction. I do believe that if we don't get some kind of formalized arrangement between fighter and promoter, um, which wouldn't eliminate things like this, but certainly mitigate their impacts, ultimately cap, cap whatever kind of... Um, either, either they would eliminate the scenario or put a cap on what kind of things you could say about them. I don't know that we're headed for disaster, but I it, it is very bad. It is very bad. There has to be some kind of new arrangement. There is way too much dissension. There is way too much negativity. Partly by absolute uh, facts of reality. Um, and both sides keep basically operating as they always have. That This is bad. This is bad. You, know, you can say whatever you want about Dana's promoting the old way he has. That's that's who he is, guys. That's who he's going to be. Yes, maybe he can change things up a little bit, but largely he's been very effective as a promoter. Whatever else you want to say about him, you know, he's not hiring Kendrick Lamar to play his son's 16th birthday by accident, right? The guy's made a lot of right decisions. He's got to, and you know, you can, you can, you can crow about the nature of those decisions or 
how they were ultimately he was able to, to get compliance, but it was successful. But whatever they were, it just doesn't work like it used to. And uh, and so you can blame him for all the ways he is, but this is basically, I think, more or less what you're going to get. What you need to find a way is another arrangement if you're going to keep him around to make that workable. And even if he's not around, you still have to find an arrangement to make that workable because those grievances don't go away. So tone deaf, maybe. But I'm telling you guys, like the fighters have got to figure this out, man. And I know it's very simple for me to get on this you know, podcast and just say that to you. Like it's some very, very easy thing to assemble. It took journalists, you know, uh, with all kinds of help and guidance and initiative a year to get that going. And we'll see what happens with the MMAJA. So like no one even knows. So this is not an easy thing, but I'm telling you, you know, I don't know if we're Thelma and Louise headed for the cliff, but it really, really makes me uncomfortable that we need a new arrangement for fighters and uh, promoters in this context to get back to some kind of working relationship um, for the benefit of everybody. Someone says, it's, uh-oh. Uh, it's funny. He says he isn't and never was the best pound for pound fighter when he was shoving the fact that DJ was the best pound for pound fighter down our throats every single time DJ fought and rap until the current dispute. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not a real thing. Potential John Jones versus DC cancellation aftermath. All right. Dana White mentioned how he would never let John Jones headline a pay per view again and appears to be eating those words. Well, at, okay. Let me let me actually take a step back. So I was there that day. That was, okay, just so this is clear, the first time that was said was at the Dana White Town Hall at Sirius XM with Jim Rome. I was there. You can ask Brett Okamoto. He was there. This was the week of UFC 205. And if you go back and listen to exactly what he said was, um, he, sa he didn't say it quite as absolutely as everyone made it out to be. I will defend Dana a little bit here. He did basically say, I don't think... Uh, the way it sounded to me was not that I'll never do it again, but that I uh, I just don't have any confidence in him until something changes. It was more the way I read it. And in and, 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 and the full context of the statements, I'll try to get those full statements out because that's where it actually fully first happened. Jim Rome asked him that question, and that's what he said. And I was standing right there watching it. Um. But okay, he had to eat those words a little bit. But it's 2017. What do you want him to do? You want him to put him in a co-main event? You know, just to keep to his words? Like, he's a promoter. He's got a bottom line at the end of the day. It's one of the biggest rematches in light heavyweight history and maybe the biggest fire of the year. You're going to put down the co-main? Like, at the end of the day, maybe he's maybe he's a hypocrite. Maybe. But who cares? He's making the right choice. So, like, you know, whatever. However, given the history of uh, and the booking of this fight, what do you think would happen if this fight was canceled again, either due to a major injury or a failed test, not something small that could be rescheduled in a month. Man, I don't even want to think about that. What would this mean for the light heavyweight division if this fight was canceled at UFC 214? What would it mean for DC ending up retiring without ever getting a second crack at Jones? And someone says, to your point, new California weight restrictions in DC seems, pardon me, scary to me. So I spoke to DC after um, after the uh, Rumble rematch, and he told me that, like, admittedly, you know, what the big problem was was, you know, his he has two suits he uses. It's he says two sets of suits for uh, when he does UFC tonight when he's in camp and out of camp because when he's out of camp, he turns into Gordito, 
And then when he's in camp, he's Flacco. Um, but he was basically saying, I can't do that. I need to stay. I, I, I've got to be. And I, I think what happened was he had changed his nutrition too late for the last camp, which is why he was struggling on that scale. And so he's also almost 40. But what he basically told me was that, like, this next camp nutrition is going to be absolutely on point. No doubt about it. I think, look, the good news is these guys don't want this to get canceled again. So I'm expecting them to be on model behavior, monitoring their diet, monitoring whatever else they need to monitor, you know, the way they're trained or to keep it up the train on the tracks. But if it falls out again and it can't be rescheduled soon, they still might do it again, man. They still might. It's so essential to the division. They have no real other options on the horizon. They might put it at that point in a co-main event role as opposed to a headlining role. But uh, I still think they'll keep trying. Eventually, it has to happen, right? Famous last words. Knock on wood. And you ask what would happen with the DC's legacy. I don't even want to get into that, honestly. I mean, it's not hard to predict. It would be uh, catastrophic is not the word, but not good. Um, one-on-one interview with Dana White. If you got an hour-long one-on-one interview with Dana White and questions and topics, what questions and topics would you go into? White has a way of dodging questions he doesn't like. How would you try to get him to open up to the more delicate matters? Someone says, Luke will probably ask him about soccer or some shit. Yes, I would. It would be all about soccer. Did you, did you guys see that liquor stores team score on DC United? What a, what a failure my life is as a DC sports fan. Um, what would I go into? Hmm. USADA. I fundamentally think that the introduction of USADA has nothing to do with any concern about cheating. And more has things to do with what happens if there's an injury or a death in the octagon. What kind of cover would it have to have a stringent drug testing as a PR um, as a PR shield? That is that is my theory. I know it's not a popular one, and again, going against conventional wisdom on this one, but I don't think it has anything to do with a deep seated concern about whether or not there is, you know, these these fights are tainted in some kind of way. I think it's about if something if when when the S hits the fan, what kind of legal cover do we have? Um, I would like to see what he thinks about that. You know, this is assuming we can get some kind of truth value out of it. Uh, also about ref share, ref share, right? To what people have always said, you know, I would ask something along the lines of to what extent uh, are fighters enti- fighters entitled to the um, TV money? So what do you have to say? One of the arguments that people always used to make about the like, no one cares about the prelim fighters they don't they don't deserve a cut of the money yada 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 these have always been totally bankrupt arguments these are super bad arguments and the main reason is that the UFC signs enough guys to put enough content to fill up enough live events and they put them on they put two hours of prelims on there uh, and every time they sell ads against them on Fox Sports One. I mean, the idea that these guys don't offer value is insane. Now, are people tuning in uh, because they want to see, you know, Young Bang or something? No. No, it's not that there's this atomized sense that this person in particular is what I really want to see. Although, of course, you guys know on occasion that can happen. But what it's really about is, as a group, competing in this space is still super valuable to the UFC. Fox Sports pays them money to show these events, and then... Fox Sports sells ads against them uh, to make, to recoup those money that, that money, and then they drag it out. And by the way, who's a prelim card one guy one time? Who's a 
who's a main card guy the other time, who's on Five Pass one time, who's on the Fox Sports one the next. Like, there's no real sense exactly about who a prelim card guy is. But let it be known, the UFC puts those on as part of the offer to buy a ticket as part of the advertising opportunity for everyone in the octagon, right? We're not putting on a four-hour show. We're putting on a seven-hour show. And one of the reasons why we're putting on a seven-hour show is because we have all this extra time on the prelims, right? In fact, the majority of the show is typically the prelims. Literally, the majority of a UFC event is the prelims. Now, not the not the most observed portion, but that time, you know, that, that time under the camera, all that is still built into the calculations here of, uh, of the benefits, all right, we're gonna have, we're gonna have five hours of prelim time. Boy, you're gonna have five hours of opportunity to put ads that people see on the octagon floor or for Fox Sports One to sell ads against. This is a totally bankrupt argument. The idea that these guys are just lucky to be there is absolute dog s. It's not real. Never accept it. Never buy it. It's not true. It's never been true. It's never gonna be true. It is one of the dumbest arguments that anyone could possibly make. Right, just be clear about that. So I would love to see what kind of answer he has to have for that. You know, I would, I would love to hear, um, and maybe he's got a good one that I haven't thought of. I can't imagine what it would be, but I would like to hear. You know, at a minimum, sometimes you want to hear these guys air it out. Look, at the end of the day, here's the deal: trying to nail any of these guys down. I'm gonna, I'm gonna nail Lorenzo down. I'm gonna nail Dana down. Maybe you will. Right, that's certainly a possibility. But at the end of the day, this is another reason why you just want to have some kind of formal arrangement for the fighters because the fighters will have weighed in. UFC management will have weighed in. They'll have reached some kind of agreement. And then whatever other disputes you may have, you can take that up with, in fact, the NF or the uh, the Fires Association. Right? One of the benefits of there being a Fires Association is that occasionally they're going to mess up. And then you can point the blame at them. right? Rather than all of these default complaints just sort of being magnetized to the UFC. Uh, I almost get tired of it to an extent. But I, I would follow questions like that, you know, um, those kinds of things, things that interest me. Who has the best social media game in MMA and why? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, I bet you follow quite a few MMA accounts on various social media. So who are your favorites and why? Okay. Um, Grabaka Hitman on Twitter is an essential follow, right? Um, Kaposa is C-A-O-P-O-S-A. Guy watches more MMA than anyone on earth. Partly to his own detriment, I think, but nevertheless, is a wonderful follow on Twitter. Uh, MJC flipped the script is good. Um, he's a guy from Fight Metric out there sharing perspectives. He's good. Um, who else I really like? I mean, I follow all the big names, you know, Patrick Wyman and Ben Folks, Bert Okamoto, Ariel Hawani, all my colleagues, Sean Alshadi, Mark Ramondi, Chuck Mindenhall, um, Julie Kedzie's a good follow. Fernando Prates is a good follow. Gamry Cruz is a good follow. Danny Segura is a good follow. Who else do I follow is a good follow? I'm trying to think here. Um, on Facebook, UFC on Fox is a good follow on Facebook, just for the amount of content they put out. Um, on Instagram, straight flexing, like Trinidad James says. I'm still new to that, but I've seen uh, Shots Fired MMA does a lot of good stuff. I'm trying to think who else is really good on Instagram that I'm not aware of. Oh, as shopped. Oh, I'll tell you who's good on Instagram. Straight flexing. Como Trinidad James. Uh, as shopped as it gets. Have you guys seen that? That dude, whoever runs that, 
This one. Now, he's a bit of a hater, but he's a funny hater. This one. That dude is funny. Got 90,000 followers on um, Instagram. Check him out. Uh, and that's really only about it. I only do Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I don't know about the rest. I'm trying to think of who else I follow on Twitter. That's like really cool. Street Fight Bancho. Street Fighting Bancho is a good one. I'm not sure what the full name is. Um, some of the guys from Sure Dog, Jordan Breen. Oh, Todd Martin. Todd Martin is really good. Um, TJ DeSantis. I like all the stuff he puts out. Uh, some of the guys who don't really cover MMA all that much, Tomas Rios, um, Daniel Roberts, um, Tim Marchman. Who else? And I'm sort of meandering here. I'm forgetting a bunch of people that are going to be bitter at me for forgetting them, and I don't mean to do that. Uh, da uh, Damon Martin is good. Uh, I'm trying to think. Some of the guys from SBJ are good. Sports Business Journal. Give them a follow. Um, who else? Anybody out there really? Sort of, I mean, everyone's like Derek Lewis and things like that. I don't follow a ton of fighters. It just it doesn't really interest me. Um, I do follow some. I'll tell you who's great on Instagram right now is Max Holloway's great. Like seeing all the stuff from Hawaii, and he bought a nice chain with diamonds in it, some princess cuts, all in his chains, all his chains, excuse me, wood grange. Ah, I messed up the, the line. What is it? Uh, princess cuts all in my chain. <laughs> princess cuts all in my chain. Wood grain all in my range. There it is. Too old and too white. All right. So there's a bunch. Just go with those. Los Anjos at welterweight. RDA is making his UFC welterweight debut against Tarek Safadine this weekend. How do you think this one he'll do at welterweight? Do you think he can work his way to the top? I think he'll be surprisingly effective. Uh, he'll be uh, fast. I think his leg kicks and his power will carry over up a weight class. You know, the size differential is a bit of an issue, and I wonder how he'll deal with the takedown pressure or pressure against smushing against the fence. Um but I'm excited. I think I think he'll be surprisingly nimble, surprisingly powerful, and you know not depleted as he has been. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, in fact, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe he is the odds-on favorite as well, substantially so. Minus two seventy, minus two sixty, minus two sixty, minus two eighty. Sportsbook has him at minus three thirty. Now that seems a little bit high, but you get the idea. I think he'll be very competitive. Tony Ferguson, do you know when he'll be back? I have not talked to him. By the way, oh, I reached out to Ryan Hall. Hasn't heard anything. You guys asked me last week to reach out, so I did. Uh, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Hasn't heard. He's just training and uh, running a school. That's it. So I just rewatched Hunt versus Lewis. Okay. I was actually impressed with Derek Lewis's performance. After watching it the second time, aside from the back injury and being forced to stand tall, Derek performed well in such a high-stakes fight. Yeah, he's good. He lost that fight due to inexperience and a low fight IQ, and also the injury probably affected his decision-making to a fairly substantial degree. I think Hunt won that fight because of his experience, uh, quarter-second quicker, better footwork, and had better head movement. I would agree with that. That was actually a good loss for such a young, inexperienced fighter like Lewis, but I don't get all the hate he got after the fight. Why all the hate, Luke? I don't know. Was there a lot of hate for Derek Lewis? I didn't see any hate. 
uh, he retired or semi-retired after the fact. So, um, no, I agree. Look, Lou, here, here's what I said about Hunt after the, on my, on my post-fight show and on the Monday Morning Analyst. I didn't see a lot from Hunt that told me, you know, uh, we have to reconsider his upside. But what I did say was we have to reconsider his downside. And by that, I mean, do I think he's the best heavyweight in the world? No. But he looked pretty good. Like all the things you know he can do, he did a lot of them. Good takedown defense. Uh, stayed away from most of his opponent's biggest shots. Now, he got cracked with a few, but okay. Chin is still pretty good. His own footwork was good. His own speed was good. His shot selection was good. His accuracy, both fighters had accuracy, but in the end, he was the better one. And when he couldn't knock the guy out, he would just go to the body and you know slowly chipped out and put combinations together when when Hunt or when uh, Lewis was single shotting and and everything else. So like to me, smart performance, one that tells you he's still capable of beating and fighting against really good guys. And um, it sucks that what happened to, to Lewis. I think Lewis probably could have performed better without the injury, but I don't know what the hate is all about. I, I thought Hunt looked fine, like not awesome. Yeah, I mean, th this is not a guy who I think is going to beat Miocic anytime soon. We all saw how that movie ends, but I still think he's a very competitive, good uh, heavyweight fighter. Here we go. I've been dying to get to this one. Goldberg and Ronaldo, both coming off acrimonious departures in different ways, though, from the UFC and WWE, respectively. Are these guys good signings for Bellator? Uh, absolutely. Um, now, look, both guys just got signed. I think we all know what my preferences are. I fundamentally believe uh, that Mar Ronaldo is the preeminent combat sports commentator of our generation. And I have a very hard time even understanding what the argument to the contrary could be. Now, Joe Rogan might be a, a secondary one, but they're very different. And here's why I think Ronaldo is just leagues above everybody. Uh, he's the only guy who's done high-level versions of everything. Um, I don't consider pro wrestling a sport because it's not, but it is certainly a part of the combat sports family. And he has done that at a high level. And I think was well-received by MMA fans, even if that absolutely bizarre culture that they have maintained there has forced him out to our benefit, really. So in a way, I guess, thanks. But um, can go to glory and not miss a beat. And everyone's like, he did pride. And when he did pride, you know, look, was he prone to exaggeration? That's a little bit of Morrow's style. But when he did the Bushido stuff, he could dial it back in and be very technical. And, I mean, this was a guy who was talking about elevator sweeps before, you know, other color commentators were even in the business. And um, I, I think it's an – I mean, I, having him is – you know, I talked last week, you know, imagine if, you know, what's what's a great thing for DJ? He's a prestige asset, right? You know when Mar Ronaldo is going to make the call, he's, it's going to be good. Is anybody perfect? No, no one's perfect. I'm sure he'll make a mistake at some point and everyone will point it out and laugh. That's just the way of the world. But generally speaking, it's an, an extremely high level of ability. Okay. Now, everyone knows my feelings about Mike Goldberg. I, I don't, I'm not a fan of his work. I've made that clear, and I'm not going to change that. However, in a week where a guy got hired and there's all these well wishes, uh, I don't want to be that guy who's like, eh. so congrats to Mike. Um, it's not my favorite by any stretch of the imagination, but we'll have that conversation down the road. We'll see how he does. Maybe he comes out guns blazing. Who knows? Um, but look, I understand, even if I'm not a fan of Mike Goldberg's style of commentary, I'm not dumb enough to say that uh, – 
I don't understand the hiring. Number one, Morrow's busy. I'm not sure what his relationship is with Glory. Todd Grisham was on that Paris call, but he's certainly still a me member of Showtime. And now, of course, he'll be doing some of these Bellator shows. They probably need him to trade off a little bit. Um, may maybe Goldberg will be the anchor, or maybe he'll be the secondary one. I, I don't really know. But we'll have to see how this plays out. But the point being is, it looks to me like you want to have Morrow on your team, but he's a really busy, committed guy. Mike has a lot less responsibility. So, uh, number one, you have a guy who has called combat sports and MMA on uh, national TV uh, and international TV uh, available to you for an increasing uh, an increasing workload. And if you really had to ask yourself, how many guys have called high-level uh, MMA on TV as play-by-play -play commentators who are available for your promotion to do all the various shows that you're going to do? There's not many guys. I mean, maybe Todd Harris is out there, but he probably has a contract with NBC Sports still or... You could do Lon McEacher, and he has done some of the Bellator kickboxing stuff. But that's probably why you have Morrow. And Lon's good, but Lon's not better than Morrow. Um, I'm just trying to think who's out there. Michael Schiavello, but he's moved back to Australia, so that's gone. Um, there's just not a lot of guys. There's just not a lot of guys. And then when you add in the fact that you know, got when they let Stitch Duran go, it uh, it didn't really end the world, but it didn't make people who are hardcore fans very happy. And when they let Burt Watson go, it wasn't the end of the world, but they, it didn't make hardcore fans very happy. When those guys got signed by Bellator, it also didn't change the world, but it certainly helps with a general perception of things. And Mike Goldberg, when he was let go, again, I, I think the UFC commentary will be better off for it, but there was, I'm not, you saw it, there was a lot of people who really were upset about it in the hardcore community. And so here's what I think is the big deal. Number one, it just makes sense because, you know, Mike Goldberg called everything on Spike and there's not many guys who can do this. And if, and Morrow's a busy guy, too, even if Morrow's, I think, my favorite and the best guy in the business. Morrow's better than anybody in the business, period. Um, it, it makes sense because it's not that mere... Do y'all get this feeling? It's not merely that Bellator is trying to be, like, an anti-UFC. Like, you guys aren't going to allow sponsors. We're going to allow sponsors. It's, it's not just that. In signing guys like Stitch and Burt, and Mike Goldberg and Morrow to an extent, it feels like they're trying to preserve that moment in time in MMA. So let's say circa 2013-ish, 14-ish, where everyone was really happy. I don't mean everyone, everyone's got complaints, but where there was this idyllic sense about MMA where people were really jazzed about the brands and jazzed about the sport and all the big things coming around and and look, even then, there were people complaining, I'm one of them, about, I'm not sure this Fox deal is a great deal for the UFC, it's a great deal for Fox, or, um, you know, eventually the Reebok deal happened. And um, But it, it, felt, it feels to me like what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, remember how excited you used to be about MMA? Remember that feeling you used to have right here? We're going to preserve that. We're going to create a world where you can feel like that again. That's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to make you feel like, remember, remember how they used to feel like home and how excited you used to be? We're going to do that again. Rather, the UFC is sort of pursuing, and I, you know, and each to each their own, UFC is pursuing a more cutthroat corporate um, version of the, of the brand. And there's less nurturing, I think, of the hardcore community than there used to be. Bellator is going the opposite direction. They're trying to say, remember how you used to feel 
just delighted to watch and how you would look with stars in your eyes at the fighters and then the broadcast and the and and and, and this feels like home to you we're gonna we're gonna make it feel like home again we're gonna make it feel like mom's apple pie again that's what it feels to me like what they're doing and my goldberg is a key component of that is a key component of that i think a lot of fans who are going to watch this are going to say i feel better about the bellator brand because mike is there i feel better about the bellator brand because Moro is there. I, th- I think that's true. Because look, Stitch, you see him on occasion in the ring, you know, fixing somebody up. You don't really hear from him that often. Bert, Bert's off doing that MMA Alliance thing. Mike Goldberg will be front and center on a broadcast, right? You're literally going to hear him talk. And you'll see him doing the mic stand-ups next to Jimmy Smith. Um, I think it's another strategy to get people to have warmer sympathies towards Bellator. I think a lot of people at first were like, I don't like Bellator. And then they kind of went like, I'm indifferent. And now they're like, okay, it's cool that Lorenz is there and Rory's there. I'll watch those guys. And I'm not saying anyone they could bring over Mike or anybody else is a game changer, but I do think that this is another piece in the building block of getting people to say, huh, I think I kind of like Bellator a little bit. It feels like home. It's familiar. I understand these guys. I, I've watched these guys for 10, 15 years, or whatever it is. I've watched these guys for 10, 15 years. Um, that's what I'm used to. That's what I like. That's what I know. That's what I want. And I think you get a lot of that. You know, me personally, I have a very different idea about what commentary should sound like, but I've looked around at what the fan base wants, and I think they want a lot of that. And I think it's very, very smart of Scott Coker, excuse me, Scott Coker to recognize that, and it's ultimately to make these deals. So we'll see how it pans out. Maybe Moro does amazing, or maybe he moves on to other things. Maybe Mike pans out. Maybe Mike doesn't. I don't know how it's going to go. But uh, ultimately, what I feel like is it was a very smart thing to sign them for a lot of different reasons. And the value that Mike Goldberg brings, to me, Morrow brings, and again, this is just my personal preference. To me, Morrow brings um, just that super elite skill set and sympathies from the hardcore fan base, of course. But I think what Mike brings is, yes, he's got experience uh, doing this at a high level for a very long time. But he also brings a certain degree of hardcore comfort. He brings a certain degree of positivity to the brand and a certain degree of familiarity for the MMA viewing audience. So it's he brings some other things beyond the commentary that make that signing make sense. And I, and I recognize that. So congrats to both those guys. Smart, smart stuff from Bellator, especially a week ahead of their biggest event. No doubt about it. Any idea who Cyborg is fighting at UFC 214? I mean, it's believed to be Megan Anderson, but nothing is official yet. Is this card having a bad star so far? Lost two marquee fights. Let's look at UFC 214 before I open my dumb mouth. Daniel Cormier, John Jones, TBD versus Andre Feely. Ricardo Lamas versus Jason Knight. Sorry, but that's awesome. I mean, I know it's not the same as Korean Zombie, but still. Aljamain Sterling versus uh, Henan Barrow. Yep. Kaylin Kern versus Alexandra Albu. I thought she was gone. Josh Bergman versus Drew Dober. Dmitry uh, Smolyakov versus Adam Wizorek. Eric Shelton, Jared Brooks, Jimmy Manoa versus Volkan Ozdemir. Sage Northcote versus Claudio Puelles. Puelles. 
Uh, yeah, not a great card. Not a great card. Sonnen Silva, a week and a half out, does this fight happen? And someone writes, good question. I vote no. New York is a terrible risk for a Legends Division fight. They should be doing it in Texas or some other jurisdiction where it's virtually guaranteed to go forward. Also, Silva's no-showing the press conference seems like a big red flag. I had the same feeling. I did not get a good feeling from Vanderlei Silva with that. I don't know. I have no inside information whatsoever. I have no idea. I don't know. I certainly hope that's not the case. I am very much hoping that everything goes smoothly. That would be great for it'd be great for MMA to have an event like that go off without a hitch. No doubt about it. Um, but yeah, I got the heebie-jeebies on that one too. Putting it in New York is a risk, but they want it at a marquee venue. They want to say we put on shows at the biggest venues in the world and uh, Viacom has headquarters in downtown uh, New York. Um, they've got that Times Square studio that they used, I think. They still own that. The one we did uh, MMA uh, Uncensored in. Yeah, it's a big deal. So, it's just a risk. <laughs> it's just a risk. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, it's a deeply unsatisfying answer, but... I think it'll be okay. I know I've asked Scott Coker about this. Like, are you worried that this is not going to happen? And he seemed to think, you know, I understand your concern, but I ultimately think this will go forward just fine and and whatever. So we'll see. Oh, I forgot Mike Fagan on Twitter, and now he's beating me up on Twitter. So go follow It's Mike Fagan, especially if you want dumbass tweets about the White Sox or uh, professional wrestling on Mondays when I have to mute him and can't take it anymore. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine. You can follow me at L Thomas News. And uh, uh, use the hashtag chat rappers as well, and I will answer them. All right. Funny how UFC unfiltered hosts wonder why certain fighters won't come on the podcast. I have no idea what you're talking about. Who didn't want to come on the podcast? I didn't hear about this. Uh, what fight are you most looking forward to this weekend? Ooh, good question. I will tell you, it's not the home fight. It's um, Dong Hong Kim, Colby Covington. I know that's not like the sexy answer, but I think that's that could be a very, very, very interesting contest. UFC needs to acquire Jimmy Smith when Joe Rogan leaves. He's the only other who can match Joe Rogan's knowledge. Well, Jimmy is great, but I think Bellator is going to keep him around for a very long time. But here's the interesting part, I think. They're already grooming the Cruises and the DCs of the world to get ready. Um, Kenny Florian still available, I, I suppose, if they want. Oh, are you kidding me? Gunshots just now outside the Barclays Center. People ran. Police just arriving. Unclear if anyone was hit. Everyone I talked to is okay. For crying out loud. I think there was a shooting today in San Francisco as well, in addition to the one in Alexandria. So that's great. Uh, everyone's Yosemite Sam out there. But I think they're already grooming the next generation of talent, and I think that there'll be other fighters who can step up and fill that role. Jimmy Smith is great, and I, but I, I don't. I don't either need or want to see him leave Bellator. It seems like a great fit for everyone. Um, they like him. He likes them. Why leave? Um, and I don't know. Like, you'll see, can find their own person. You know, there's plenty of people they can pick. 
you think about Bellator having a bit of a revisionist point when promoting Chael Sonnen in their uh, countdown show on Spike? They said he dominated Silva, no mention of the actual losing effort, and said he had his way with Bisping when that fight was a split decision that could have gone either way. Has his shtick seen its end, or is he becoming difficult to market as a legitimate contender? I mean, what do you expect Chael to say? And what do you expect Bellator to say? Just be an educated fan about it, you know? Uh, how crazy do you find it that Cristiano Ronaldo follows Mickey Gall, Sage Northcutt, and DJ on Instagram? Does he really? Spend less time. <laughs> Spend less time evading taxes. Uh, you know, and more time, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with following those guys, I guess. I have no idea. That's funny. That's funny. He's an MMA fan, man. What do you want me to say? Could you explain to a layman fan like me the benefits of the MMAJA to media? Uh, well, without knowing exactly what they're proposing to do, I would be speaking out of turn. There might be an argument to be made that there are certain benefits that come with membership um, related to uh, policing, self-policing uh, codes and standards. Um, perhaps there could be a ability to speak uh, as a group and the power of the MMA media generally in addressing certain concerns about um, how we're being treated by various promoters. Um, there's a lot of things that could be a benefit of membership. I, I don't know what they're proposing. I mean, it literally just came out a while ago. I don't have a super sophisticated take on it. So let me just review what they are proposing, and and I'll be able to tell you whether or not it's a uh, it's a good thing. With the rise of Bellator, would it be in the realm of possibilities they fuse with UFC to form a league? Not unless one gets bought out and then folded, and by that you mean fusing. What? Oh, sorry. The way the question was worded had me confused. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is wrong with Travis Brown. That's one question. And do you think Bones' mom's passing will fuel his resurgence? Well, I can tell you when my mom passed, there was nothing resurgent about it. Um, everyone handles things these differently, and I don't know. I, I'm sure it's incredibly devastating to... Uh, what he's going through right now is just, you know, pain you cannot extinguish. It's a fire you cannot put out. You just have to sit there and burn. Um, for me, it took me years to get over, uh, or not get over, you know, you never get over the death of, of a loved one, right? It's not, it's not, oh, I got over the, the death of my brother. Like, no one ever says that unless they're like a sociopath. You learn to live again. You learn to be happy again, but that you never get over it. You never get over it. There's no get. There's no such thing, unless you're deeply unattached from this person. And I don't think he was. I mean, I'm pretty sure he was pretty close to his mother and his father as well. So, um, there's no such thing as getting over it. And I don't. 
look, everyone reacts to these things differently. You've seen guys been, been and, and women in athletics been moved to greatness. But I usually, I tend to think this thing will, you know, either do nothing to his performance or negatively affect it. I don't, I just can't imagine how that could propel you forward. Um, but he's a absurd level athlete, so it is certainly possible. Jim Norton made a comment that he wishes fighters would come on the show over the MMA hour. <laughs> I mean, I like Jim, but I wish fighters would do lots of things. If you can't give them a proper incentive, that's not their fault. Where does Tim Elliott go from his stunning loss to Ben Wynn? Oh, he'll just pick up the pieces and fight someone else and he'll be all right. That unexpected win is what USADA looks for. Nope. That's got nothing to do with USADA. Let me assure you. That's got everything to do with a tactical mistake. It was, it was, uh, it was B speaking of BJ Penn, it was BJ Penn, Matt Hughes all over again. Someone has your back and they've got an over-under grip and you're out there with two hands fighting the feet. You're going to get your throat slashed. And that's exactly what happens. Uh... Schaub says the UFC should play the national anthem. Do you agree? Well, Brendan Schaub and I agree on many things. He is about as successful as a person can be in this space. So all the credit to him. But on that issue, we do not agree. Uh, there are certain forms of patriotism, that I, public patriotism, that I absolutely uh, applaud. Uh, playing the national anthem as, you as an athlete who represents your country, let's say before the U.S. plays Mexico in soccer, sure, absolutely. Gymnast uh, the Olympics, absolutely, no doubt about it. But just playing at a random UFC event where there's a multitude of ethnicities and nationalities in the audience and in the uh, uh, competing, to me, makes absolutely no sense. And let me give a big shout-out to the American Outlaws. Have you seen these bozos? My God, dumbasses, every last one of them. Uh, they go out there and they go place-to-place place and country-to-country to support our incredibly mediocre U.S. men's national team in soccer, which is fine. I appreciate their fandom. However, they absolutely desecrate the American flag by wearing it as a goddamn cape, which it is not, and as a bandana like they're effing bank robbers in the 1830s charging west uh, in the goal. I mean, absolute clowns, every last one of them. Not one of them appears to be familiar with the U.S. flag code, which is not binding law, but is a certain set of uh, rules established that define what is proper use of and display of the American flag. And they literally trounce every last aspect of that. They make me sick. I mean that. They make me absolutely sick. Um, I'm not against flag burning as a form of political protest. But if you're going to be adopting a cause, like a semi-pro-patriotic cause, y'all need to figure that out, man. Because just trampling on the flag code because you want... on hat and Learn the flag code, please. Thank you, clowns. Enacting more and more like Trump daily. Fighters thinking Dana is their friend is like believing what stripper tells you. I don't think it's quite like that. Um, has anyone translated what Kute Lava said? No. But if you want to tell me, I'd be happy to read it on the air. In the future, can you see Shannon Knapp taking less of a role in Invicta and running the UFC's women's divisions? 
without speaking to her about her interests, I don't know. If you're asking me if she'd do a good job, I think that answer kind of speaks for itself. Uh, someone says, I am figuratively dying because Luke Thomas is explaining what douching is on the live chat today. You got to help these, you know, these, these jokers out, man. Uh, let's see. You know Majestic lost the MLB contract. Would this brand be better fit for UFC or is Reebok already in too deep? I don't notify the situation to speak uh, to speak intelligently. He looks like a suck-up because he whined to Dana for a title shot in another weight class. Yeah, but he also presented an opportunity. Right? I mean, whether there's a, there's a disagreement here about whether the fight should happen, right? But there's a bunch of you who are have suggested you would prefer that fight. Like, he's presenting a business opportunity. Look, there's a case to be made for TJ's arguments. I'm not going to be the one to make it. I'm not the one who agrees after those who make it. Um, I, I, I ultimately don't believe it's very convincing, but it's not a case of I'm whining to get something. It's here is a set of benefits if you want to follow this. And yeah, he might, you know, the Minnie Mouse thing is not a good look, but in reality, what is he presenting? He's presenting an opportunity, a business opportunity. And there's some costs and there's some benefits with it. And you got to sort of take those, you know, uh, each way. Someone says that Michael Bradley goal, though. The Michael Bradley goal was nice, I have to admit. That was that was pretty ridiculous. I was look. I love the team, and if the American Outlaws would stop, you know, treating the American flag like they're members of ISIS, I'd like them too. But you know, I've seen, I've honestly seen flag burnings, uh, you know, in hostile countries that treat the American flag better than I've seen the American Outlaws do. Absolute disgrace. And not every country has a flag code like ours, so. I'm not saying every flag should be treated that way. Flags should be treated based on whatever people of that country decide. And certainly the outlaws are not, it's not illegal what they're doing. But <laughs> it's a, it, like, if it was a form of political protest, it would make more sense. That's, that's my point. Preference for Aldo. Stay at featherweight or go to lightweight. Aside from the rematch with Max, just so many more interesting fights from a lightweight. If you're asking me personally what would be more interesting, yes, lightweight would be more interesting, but I have a hunch he wants to stay at featherweight and see if he can recapture gold. Why can't TJ run it back with Dodson? Dodson was on IG looking for a fight, both 135ers now, because he's not a champion. <laughs> uh, apparently everyone loved the explanation of douching. Uh, Luke, have you ever done a more useless interview than the one you did with Mr. Roy Nelson? Uh, not, not, not a great time. I mean, it was fine. He was, he's not a bad guy. It's just, it wasn't a good time to talk to him. Uh, larger skill gap, Tony versus Couture in MMA or Mayweather versus McGregor in boxing. Uh, Tony Couture in MMA because Couture took it to the ground. And once you're there, I mean, it's the, the skill gap there is extraordinary. There's to be clear, there's a real skills gap. Uh, between Mayweather and McGregor, but um, not nearly as much. Not nearly as much. Is it crazy for the UFC to schedule JJ versus DC, John Jones versus DC in Cali with the new weigh-in rules? No. I think there's probably some consideration given to that. <laughs> Derek Lewis really done with MMA. Hashtag Forza Barca. God. Uh, 
I said this on my on my post fight show, and I'll repeat it here. You guys remember when um, Habib Nurmagomedov cracked his rib and was like, "I think I'm done here." I think there's a big part of that. I think there's a big part of that, uh, namely that when fighters are injured and suffering, asking them for their like thoughts on something or to make a grand decision. I'm not saying that they're lying to you, but they're just so heavily affected by the pain that they're probably not thinking all that clearly, or maybe they'll change their mind when they, they don't feel that way. There's lots of ways to consider that. I think my point is maybe he will retire. Maybe that was the last, but I'd rather talk to him once that rib or not the rib in this case, the, um, the lower back injury is healed. Once that's healed, let's see how he feels then. Uh, if he gets actual treatment for it, let's see how he feels then. But until then, you have to take him at his word, but there's obviously an asterisk over it. I, I suspect he will fight one or two more times. I just, when guys are suffering from very serious pain injuries, and especially chronic ones he's been dealing with since 2011, I just fundamentally don't think that they're in their right mind. They, they, they may decide, yeah, you know what, I feel better, but I'm done. But there's a lot of them who are like, I feel better, and I'll, I'll give it a, one more go. You know, and I, 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 My hunch is that we're uh, looking at something like the latter. Okay. Thank you guys so much for watching. Really appreciate it. If you got any email me, uh, emails, you want to send LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. I appreciate it. Um, thank you guys so much for watching. Give it a thumbs up. Share this video around. And uh, subscribe to MMA Fighting below. You can hit that subscribe button and click the alarm bell. That way you know when things come to your – when the videos get posted, you get an alert. Yeah? Okay. Uh, until next time, stay frosty. Donkeys. <laughs>